Hey, Rockheads. This is Music to Code by Track 12. Check this out. Oh yeah, just what you need to get in the zone when you write code. And get this, we just added a site license. Download it once, share it with everybody in your office. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Net Rocks, episode 1313. Recorded Saturday, June 18th, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's another great episode of Net Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. How's it going over there? I am still not recording from my studio. I am still recording upstairs. Uh, uh, I know what we did a show a while ago. Where I said, "Hey, this is probably the show where I moved back." You know, after this, we moved back in. Not to be stuff. So, what was the what was the holdup? Uh, we still desks aren't quite finished. Some uh, I'm still missing a few of the lights for the new lighting system. Uh, some wiring yeah. changes. It's just you know what everything takes longer than planned. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Well, maybe next time. Yeah, I hope so. Hey, let's roll the music, because I got something fun for you today. Awesome. All right, man, what do you got? This is actually a listener contribution from Abdu Burks. He heard me talking about how, when we were talking to Troy Hunt, I think, I said I set up Windows 10, and I, I was going to use a VM just for browsing. Right. And it just became too... You know, the experience prohibitive, let's say. <laughs> Too much work to, to, that you'll actually use it, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the one of the great things about the internet is you can just go, boom, find this. You know, it's sort of like instant gratification. You get used to that and you don't want to spin up a VM and yada, yada, yada. You don't want to wait. Right. Well, Abdu says you should check out sandboxy.com. Sand, B-O-X-I-E dot com. Or you can, of course, get there at 1313.pwop.me. So, B-O-X-I-E, Sandboxy. So, this is essentially an isolation technology to separate programs from your underlying operating system, preventing unwanted changes from happening to your personal data, programs, and applications that rest safely on your hard drive. Hmm. Particularly for web browsing, email, data protection, application testing and it supports all the way up through windows 10 and it's free it was wow. a life hacker number one windows utility that's really interesting i mean front and center is web browsing and email two of the best malware vectors you could hope for absolutely cool yeah so thank you so much abdu i haven't downloaded and tried it uh but i plan to <laughs> Right after we finish this show, actually. <laughs> and you seem like you've almost got your voice back, buddy. Like, it's been way yeah. too long. 
I know. And you're going to hear a bunch of shows that we recorded in, in uh, Norway where I sound a lot worse than this. But yeah. yeah, it's it's back. I'm actually singing now. And yeah. The shows are, are you know, generally we try and do shows in order, but Geek Outs are the exception because yep. Geek Outs are a lot of work for me. And we generally mm-hmm. record them close to publication. And there's only one a month. But, you know, yeah. like the, the NDC shows, which are already all in the can for us now today while we're mm. doing this. I mean, that's almost all the way to, to July. That's a lot of shows. Yeah. yeah. So who's talking to us, Richard? Uh, grabbed a comment off a of show 1184. That is the manned missions to Mars geek out, which has a ton of comments. And admittedly, a bunch of them are me answering more detailed questions because folks often ask very complicated questions. Yes, they do. This particular comment is from a series of conversations I had with Eric Paul, where we were talking about Elon Musk and SpaceX and some of the things they were doing. And specifically, Mm. he said, uh, the most interesting thing to me about the article, he's talking about an article talking about SpaceX, is how SpaceX is really focusing on reusability of the rockets to lower costs, and not just at the margins, but potentially an order of magnitude. That Hmm. would be a tenfold decrease in prices. And admittedly- SpaceX off the bat has cut prices basically in half, you know, pound for kilo for kilo lift. They've gone about half to go, you know, five times more than that would really be a stretch. And Eric thought so, too. He was a little skeptical about this. A related point that struck me is how much faster SpaceX appears to move compared to their competitors. And you could say this Hmm. about Tesla as well. Yeah. You know, in a span of five years, they've made three versions of the Falcon 9 rocket. So, and there's another version coming out that the heavy will come out this year. We'll talk ah. about those versions later on the show, but you know, it is okay. true that they really have iterated fast. They seem to have figured out how to apply so-called agile techniques from the software world to nuts and bolts industries. Maybe that's overstating it, but at the very least, their product cycles appear to be much shorter than the competition. They're simply iterating faster. Well, it's funny because lean actually came out of manufacturing, didn't right. it? Right. It did. Toyota. And trying to shorten that thing up. And one of the points I made to Eric in this conversation was the fact that you understand, I really don't have anything bad to say about Lockheed Martin and Boeing and the United Launch Lines and so forth. Their agreement with the government is about reliability and being on time, not about cost. And so they just don't put any energy into cost. They are simply not incented to make this stuff less expensive. And... Elon is, you know, they, SpaceX is trying to control costs. It's one of the driving forces he's got. And he, even the contracts he's getting from the government, because he's getting government contracts, aren't incented on price either, right? Yep. So right. for better or worse, the m- issue with this model has more to do with how the government is buying launch rather than what any given company does. The fact that Elon's got a a larger goal in mind to colonize Mars, that he wants to drive these prices down, that's his own personal incentive. He's actually disincented to do what he's doing. But he's Mm -hmm. doing it anyway, and so far so good, and we'll talk more about the strengths and weaknesses of that whole process. Right. So, Eric, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Google and Facebook, and if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And speaking of mugs, I did a whole bunch of run-ases today, and I uh, read a bunch of comments from various folks and sent out a bunch of run-as mugs, too, so there's mugs oh, everywhere. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Are you using Cafe Press for that? They are Cafe Press mugs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. 
we uh, store them in our sandbox. So, Richard, where do we start with reusable spacecraft? And I thought all spacecraft were supposed to be reusable. Well, and, and pretty much none of them are. So, and I actually went, I, I was at parties this weekend and sort of sat down with folks and said, so when you think reusable spacecraft, what do you think of? You know, where have you seen reusable spacecraft? Well, I think of the space shuttle, first of all, but it was never reused, but it was designed to be reused, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the original offer in the late 60s, early 70s, when they knew the Apollo program was going to be shut down, they had to go further, do more. And by the way, I went and saw the Atlantis display at the Kennedy Space Center. It's really interesting yeah. to see the shuttle now as a museum artifact. And just the mm. way they describe, you know, their goal, they wanted to be able to fly shuttles weekly. They wanted it to be an yeah. airliner. It was supposed to be good for a hundred flights and they could fly every week and they didn't even yeah. come close. Did you get to go on the space shuttle and in Florida? No, it's uh, it's, it's there's no access to it. It's hanging on the, from the ceiling in a way that you, you can't get to it. You just get to look at oh. it for better or worse. And part of the problem was they did not have enough funding to build the shuttle they wanted to build. And they had mm. to make some serious compromises to get enough funding for the money they did get, like the deal they made with the Air Force that introduced a lot of complexity to the vehicle. And I mean, the biggest issue, of course, is that there was just it, a whole bunch of stuff wasn't reusable. The, the solid rocket boosters were sort of reusable. They parachuted back down. Um, they were generally damaged on landing. There's a big argument, and there's no easy math for this to figure out if it costed more to refurbish them and recover them than it did to just make new ones. Mm -hmm. The external tank was lost, right? That was simply re-entered the atmosphere, although there was even conversations about they shouldn't have done that. They should have left it in orbit because it was so far up in orbit by the time they were done with it, they actually had to deorbit it. It had little rockets on it to slow it down enough that it would re-enter. Okay. There was a design proposed for what was called the liquid flyback booster. After Challenger was lost, and there was a big conversation, you know, they, the, they blamed the solid rocket boosters for Challenger's loss, and there's a clear reason to say that. They said, well, you shouldn't mix solid rockets and, and humans, which is also reasonable because you can't turn them off. Let's make a liquid flyback booster. And there was actually a design for these two winged four-engine boosters that would strap to either side of the external tank that would do the same job as a solid rocket booster, get you up that first two and a half minutes of flight, and then they would separate off and fly back and land like aircraft. In fact, they, some designs even had normal airline engines in them. Yeah. Which would have been amazing. Yeah, it would have. But that's not the real issue with shuttle. The real issue okay. with shuttle is that it was such a complicated machine. I mean, such an intensely advanced machine. It had a lot of failure modes in it, a lot of ways that things could go wrong that were not recoverable. That if this happens, vehicle and, and crew are lost, which actually occurred twice. So did they have to do a lot of duplication to make sure that they had redundant systems? They had a lot of redundant systems. They built all of that in. The problem was that if the redundant systems failed in any way, you would still lose the vehicle. So the redundancy didn't work the way it wanted to. And where there wasn't redundancy, that was also failures too. So the, what really took time was all of the inspections and tests that needed to be done. By yeah. the end of the shuttle program, it was 750,000 hours to prepare a <laughs> shuttle for flight. Wow. That was... Uh, Across 25,000 workers, which represent roughly a billion a year in salaries. Now, if wow. you were flying 50 times a year, those numbers are almost manageable. But before the Challenger accident in 1986, the fastest they ever turned around a shuttle was Atlantis. They turned it around in 54 days, almost two months. 
Yeah. After the Challenger accident, where they recognized there was all these other potential problems and they had to do a bunch more testing, that time jumped up to three months. The fastest they ever turned around a shuttle was Columbia in 88 days. Huh. So, I mean, as hard as you could go, if you had even more people than they had, you couldn't fly a given shuttle more than four times a year. And there were only four of them at any given point. So the most flights you could have done in a year was 16. And they never even got that high to that number. It was typically five or six a year. Mm -hmm. So it just did not pull out the yield that it needed to do. Because so much of the shuttle was not redundant. And was not reliable enough that you could just use it over and over again. It was also turned out to be very expensive, didn't it? But I think most of that expense was labor. The machine itself was not that expensive. Hmm. It did have one of the most expensive rocket motors in the world on it. The RS-25 is an incredibly expensive rocket motor, but it was the ones on the back of the shuttle. And so they were reused. So the amortization mm -hmm. costs of those engines made a lot of sense. They were incredibly efficient. I'll talk in more detail on them later. But... That was, I would better say, the best part of shuttle, the most reusable mm. part of shuttle, but it also made shuttle much more complicated to be able to get those engines back. Mm. Mm. Now, if we're going to go and talk about building more reusable craft, because the next reusable craft, the only other one you could really talk about, is SpaceX's ability to land the first stage. Okay. Which is pretty cool. But to sort of get your head around that, around this whole rocket motor thing, I got to talk about some core concepts on rocket engines. Okay. And I've always meant to do this. There's a few things in this show, admittedly, I'm doing because I've always wanted to talk about these. Things. Yeah, right. <laughs> these are things we talk about over a whiskey. Absolutely. How does a rocket engine actually work? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of simple and, and kind of insanely complicated at the same time. You have some kind of fuel, some kind of oxidizer. And there's a few different choices there, although most of the time the oxidizer is liquid oxygen. And then it might be RP1, which is kind of kerosene. It might be hydrogen. It might be methane. There are other choices like the hypergolics, but the bottom line is you have two, an oxidizer and a fuel, you combine them together in a combustion chamber, and it hurries out the back end of the rocket. Okay. The tricky part is pumping the right mixture of fuel and oxidizer at the right speed so that they blend well and burn well, so that they come out the rocket engine without actually blowing it apart, without melting it, and not mixing up the ratios. The ratios, you know, it's very important to get it right. So the turbo pumps are the magical part of the rocket. And if you talk about anything that Werner von Braun, when you look at his V2 rocket from World War II, he mm. had the turbo pump in it. It was sort of core yeah. to the design. And so the trick is, how do you make a pump move so fast that you can move that much fuel into the engine? And in early designs, they actually had a separate fuel system to run the pump. But pretty quickly, by the 1950s, it was obvious that you want to use the rocket fuel burning to turn the pump to run the rocket fuel into the engine to actually drive the rocket. So if you're going to burn fuel, what do you do with the burnt fuel after it's burned? You spun the turbine. Well, you exhaust it, right? You dump it overboard, right? Yeah. And so most rocket designs have what's called an open cycle or gas generator engine where that's exactly what they do. They just blow it off the side. But you don't burn the fuel as efficiently as you could because when you burn fuel very efficiently, it gets extremely hot, hot enough that it will melt things. Mm. So you burn typically in a fuel-rich model, although the Soviets did an oxygen-rich model, which is kind of crazy. Fuel-rich meaning there's more fuel than oxidizer? Exactly. Yeah. 
And so there's also a thought, well, why waste that fuel? We could burn it some more. Why don't we put it in the combustion chamber? Yeah. And I think about, you know, I had a Saab turbo for many years and that's, it's kind of interesting how that happens. It, it's sort of like the leftover stuff gets pumped back into the cycle for a second spin, doesn't it? Well, in a turbo on a car, you're using the exhaust to spin the turbine to cram more air into the cylinders. So that yeah. you actually can burn the fuel more efficiently. The side effect of that is you do burn hotter, right? Because you're adding more oxidizer. You decrease the amount of fuel available so that you don't fry your engines, which means you're mm. more fuel efficient as mm-hmm. well as getting additional power. And the turbo pump and the turbo in a, in a car, not that different. One side's being spun by this burning fuel inefficiently. The other side is actually pumping the fuel for the main part of the engine. Mm. Right. And you're trying to get yeah. chamber pressures high enough that you can actually burn fuel efficiency and get lots of thrust. Now, your measurement of the efficiency of a rocket engine uses a thing called specific impulse or ISP. Okay. And really okay. what this is, is a measurement of the change in momentum for the amount of fuel you've burned, the amount of propellant consumed. Okay. And the higher number is better. So different engines designs. And different fuel mixtures can represent higher or lower ISPs. Now, it's independent of thrust and mass, but it's a good way to measure the potential of an engine. So let's talk about a few engines, given these numbers and their pluses and minuses. And I'm going to start with the infamous Rocketdyne F1 engine. Infamous. Infamous, because this is the (laughs) engine that sent humans to the moon, right? This is the Apollo Saturn V first stage rocket motor. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't infamous imply that something bad happened? Like if you're infamous, then you're, then you're famous for doing something bad. I think people use it that way. If you're famous, it's a positive, but I th- isn't infamy a pejorative? I think people generally use it that way, but it doesn't have to be. Oh, okay. I learned something today. The F1 is an extraordinary engine because to this day, that engine was designed in the late 50s, flew in the early 60s, and took 12 men to the moon, okay? Mm. Mm. And with a million and a half pounds of thrust, it's the most powerful single-chamber rocket engine ever made. Wow. Still. Still. Wow. Right? Now, the RD-170, which is the Russian engine, is actually more powerful, but it is a multi-chamber engine. It's a very different design. But it, one of the reasons that the, you have to lift a certain amount of mass to get to the moon, and it takes mm-hmm. very powerful engines. The Soviet approach with the N-1 rocket was to have 30 small engines, and the harmonics between those engines ripped apart the rocket the few times that they actually tried to fly it. So the F1 just sort of stands by itself as an incredibly, it's like finding a 747 five years after the Wright Brothers flew. It was so much more powerful than everything else that's ever been made. Now, it wasn't an incredibly efficient engine. It had an ISP of 263, which is not very high, right? High ISPs are in the three and 400 range. Mm -hmm. But it was what they call a gas generator open cycle engine. It was quite a simple engine. It just had a really big chamber. So the challenge here is you've got fuel in a tank arguably at at atmospheric or maybe 50 PSI of pressure. And you've got to get that fuel up to 1,000 PSI inside the chamber to actually burn it well enough to have power. And so you use these turbo pumps, spinning at 5,500 RPM, using a fuel risk mixture to get it spinning, and then you pump it into that chamber. It's at 1,000 PSI, and then you burn it, and it comes out of there in a big hurry. Wow. <laughs> now, now, one of the things that they did in the F1 that I thought was very clever is rather than just 
sending all that partially burned fuel overboard, they actually pumped it into the skirt of the engine. So the lower part of the cone. And you can see this if you ever look at a picture of the F1. There's a big metal pipe running in about halfway down the cone where they actually would put that relatively low temperature partially burned fuel back inside the cone. And it actually helped with cooling the nozzle. Oh, that's interesting. It's very clever. It's There's so many little things. Yeah, they're just trying to use every advantage they can with every material and every possible technology to make it run more efficiently. And the sort of miracle of the F1 is that they had stable combustion in that huge chamber. And there's some tricks they did back then that I don't know that people even understand today on exactly mm. how they made that fuel mixture works. But have mm. you ever thought about... How did they light that rocket engine on fire? Because you really want them to all light at the same time, right? Five of them on the Saturn V. How do you get them to all ignite exactly at the same time? Well, I think you write a little JavaScript program and uh, <laughs> get a little remote control there, Richard, and uh, maybe some IoT. I thought you were going to go down with a guy with a match on a long stick. We could do that. <laughs> some IoT devices. and a co- <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. There's a few different techniques. Right. Really, there's two that I've found over and over again. One is the spark plug techniques. You actually have a spark igniter inside the engine. Hmm. But it, uh, and that has pluses and minuses. It needs electricity. You know, there's some tricks to actually getting it burning. It's used in the RS-25, but the F1 engine uses a system and it's the same system that SpaceX uses called a pyrophoric ignition system. Pyrophoric. What is pyrophoric? Pyrophoric means burns in oxygen. All right, and there's some Latin roots there, pyro, fire, yeah. burn. So it, there's a substance called TEA, or triethylene aluminum, which when combined with triethylene borane makes a fluid that, if exposed to oxygen, bursts into flames. You know, I bet that's one of the things that you did when you were a kid in your chemistry set is invent that. I did not, but uh, nice of you for thinking of me that way. How do they know this stuff? You know, do they just... Because you can't, like, do an equation and say, oh, yeah, obviously, it's going to be this element. It's experimentation, isn't it? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, and the triethyls, I mean, triethyl really means three hydrogen atoms, right? Mm. So, I mean, in, in both TEA and TEB, you're talking about a metal that holds on to some hydrogen atoms and given a chance, it'll give them up. Namely, okay. you give it oxygen, oxygen will grab those hydrogens in the process, create a flame. All right. So, maybe they did have a little bit of an idea on paper before they tried it. Absolutely. And so they put injectors inside the motor and they would spray a little of the TEA, TEB. Now, typically they release liquid oxygen first. And I'm going to include some links to videos of rocket motors starting because mm. when you, you'll see this, you'll see a little blast of liquid hot oxygen run first. Then the TEA, yeah. TEB is fired. And if you, if it, there was enough time, because it usually happens pretty fast, you might even see a green flame briefly from the boron burning. Hmm. Mm. And then they release the actual propellant, typically RP-1, and certainly RP-1 in the case of the F-1 engine, and that actually gets the engine to light. And then you throttle it up. And what's RP-1? Kerosene, just a refined version of kerosene. Hmm. Now, I mean, people like RP-1. This is the used in the Atlas V. It was used in the Saturn V. It's used in SpaceX's Falcon 9. It's a great fuel because it's liquid at room temperature, right? It's it's yeah. simple to handle. You don't, doesn't need any special use. It burns really evenly. That's what makes it different from regular kerosene. Uh, you know, the the Soviets use it, the the Americans use it, the Russians use it. We still use it today. It's a good dense fuel, and density matters. Yeah, 
I, I know that there are kerosene heaters and stuff, but I mean, how does it compare to say gasoline? Because I thought gasoline was a very dense fuel as well. It is. And gasoline and kerosene are very similar to each other. There's not a whole lot of difference. Gasoline has mm. other in things in it better suited for reciprocating motors. Mm. Uh, kerosene is still, I mean, RP1 and Jet A, the engine used in jet fuel, for uh, is very, very similar as well. It's just a wow. good, dense fuel. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you can tell this, if you actually look at the design of RP-1 rockets, is you'll see that the RP-1 tank is about half the size of the liquid oxygen tank. Huh. Okay? And remember, all this tankage is weight. We're trying yep. to get it as low weight as possible. So one of the reasons you like RP-1 is that it's so dense, the tank is substantially smaller than your oxidizer for it. Mm-hmm. And that's not true when you deal with liquid hydrogen. Mm. So I mentioned the space shuttle and the RS-25 engine. The RS-25 engine, they still call it to this day the Ferrari of rocket engines because it's incredibly <laughs> efficient. Wow. It ran on liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen and produced, at sea level, an ISP of 366, so a third higher than the F-1 engine. Although, admittedly, only putting out about 400,000 pounds of thrust or about a quarter of what the F-1 engine could put out. But they put three okay. of them on the back of a shuttle, lots of power, right? Yep. Now, this engine was a stage combustion engine, so they actually used a two-stage turbopump system. So, you had an initial turbopump driven on gaseous fuel and, and oxidizer, and then a pre-burner stage for the faster turbos because the chamber pressure inside the RS-25 was 3,000 PSI, so three times higher than the F1. Holy crap. So, that higher pressure means a more effective burning of fuel, which is one of the reasons you get such high ISPs out of this engine. Okay. The downside to running those kinds of pressure so forth, very, very, very hot engine. So, they had all this complex cooling, typically using the liquid hydrogen to cool it. So, you want the liquid hydrogen to be gaseous by the time you actually pump it into the engine. So, they'd actually pump it through these fine capillaries in and around the nozzle and around the turbo pumps themselves to keep them from melting, which would then make it gaseous, help spin the initial stage of turbo pumps, and then feed it into the engine to actually flare it. It's one of the reasons the engine was so expensive, but Hmm. incredibly efficient. And the upside to the hydrogen-oxygen combination is you're making water as the output. Right. So the engine runs super clean, super efficiently. One of the downsides is liquid hydrogen is a bear to deal with. It's very flammable, isn't it? And it also has to be extremely cold, much colder than liquid oxygen. So it's much hmm. harder to make. It's much harder to hold on to. There's really no good way to store liquid hydrogen these days because it's just so hard and it's nowhere near as dense. So suddenly you go from your RP1 propellant tank is like half the size of your liquid oxygen tank. Hydrogen tank is four times the size of your liquid oxygen tank. Is that one of the reasons because it's cold and so less dense that uh, hydrogen fuel cell cars didn't really take off? Well, hydrogen fuel cells have their own set of problems as well, but it's very hard to store enough hydrogen in a car Mm. to be able to run it for as far as people want a car to go. And it's also why the shuttle didn't have fuel for those big engines in the shuttle. It was all in an external tank. Once that external tank was empty, those engines were never used again. Well, there you go. They carried them the rest of the way into orbit, and they brought them all the way back, unable to use them because it just takes so much fuel. Hmm. Now, there are RP-1 stage combustion engines, and the most famous of these is actually a Russian design, the RD-180. This is the engine that's on the Atlas V. Okay. Which is interesting, you know, that, and it's created a big stink these days right now when the Russians aren't that much our friends anymore. They're like, why are we using Russian engines on our one of our most important rockets? Yeah. 
because it's a stage combustion engine using RP-1, it's really efficient. So where the F-1 engine was uh, ISP of 263, the RD-180 engine at sea level is an ISP of 311. So substantially mm. more efficient. And 800,000, 850,000 pounds of thrust, so about half the performance of an F-1 at much higher efficiency. Its wow. chamber pressure is 3,900 PSI, so even higher. She's a- you know, the other big strength of the RD-180 compared to a lot of engines is it's very throttleable. Okay. Most rocket engines only run well at one speed. They have relatively few range of, of speed they can adjust. The RS-25 was pretty adjustable, but they mostly prefer to run at 100%. The RD-180 can actually throttle down to 50%, but most engines don't have that kind of range. It's very hard to rev in a big range. These engines that we've talked about so far... Are they still in use today or are these old ones that aren't being used or what's the, these aren't state of the art yet, right? Well, they're pretty close. The F1 engine hasn't flown since the 1970s. Okay. And I, but I refer to it because it's state of the art in the sense of nobody's ever built a more powerful engine. Yeah. The RS-25, one of the most efficient engines ever made. They're going to fly it again on SLS. It was the shuttle's engine and it's an amazing engine. SLS? Uh, the Space Launch System, the new NASA super rocket. Okay. It's going to use four RS-25s. Wow. The RD-180, one of them flew two weeks ago on the Atlas V. They're still flying that engine day in, day out. Although fundamentally, the design's from the 1960s. It's still considered one of the best engines out there. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to promise that I will not reuse or refurbish an old joke for this show. Other shows might have refurbished jokes, but this show will have a fresh new joke. That's awesome. What, you want it to be funny too? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say it would be funny. I love it. <laughs> it's just different. Just different. Just different, not reusable. Actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Vasily Pupkin. Congratulations, Vasily. It's all clap for you, sir. And Vasily just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Developer Express. And hey, if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. All right, what's next? I can't wait. Well, as you probably suspected, I've walked you all the way towards SpaceX. Because we're talking about reusable spacecraft. And besides the shuttle, with all of its flaws, the only thing we have that even looks remotely reusable right now is the SpaceX Falcon 9 first stage. In fact, Elon Musk is making reusability his number one goal. Yes. Because he believes that is the key to making human life go beyond earth if we can't get into orbit cheaper we're just not going to do it 
How do you make it cheaper? And I appreciate also that his rocket designs are very simple. So one of the reasons yeah. he's been able to cut the price in half is his designs are simpler. And at the same time, he's trying to figure out how to be reused. And it's, we're recording this right now in mid-June. None of the four rocket stages that he's recovered have been reflown. Huh. We don't know the core thing, which is what state are those rockets in when you get them back? Are they mm-hmm. really reusable? The same problem the shuttle had. You know, the shuttle came back, but reality was to actually use it again, rent thousands and thousands of hours of refurbishing and testing. And we don't know what this looks like for them. I remember being in Scotland with you in a pub, in a hotel bar, watching the first attempted landing, water landing mm-hmm. of the Falcon 9, and it didn't happen. <laughs> Let's say that. Well, you know what? It got to the barge, so a lot went right. Yeah. Just that landing part. Right. And I think there was a second failure, and then the third one was a charm. Is that right? And it was three barge failures, and then the fourth was a land landing, because it was a particular orbit where they could get back to land, and that worked. And then yeah. the next landing was a barge landing, and that worked. Yeah, okay. And then they had two more barge landings successfully, including two we didn't expect. Two of those were both GTOs, which were much higher energy returns, and the very latest one, which was another GTO, uh, didn't work out. The, he also says at SpaceX.com, there's an article that I'm reading here, and I'll post the link to it, that uh, eventually they want to – They, I, I guess they started – the barge landings because it was safer, right? If something goes wrong and it blows up and won't kill anybody. It also costs a lot less energy. Right? Okay. Flying all the way back to land is a lot further than landing out a barge out at sea. All right. Uh, um, he says eventually, though, they wanted to do them on land. He says initially on an autonomous spaceport drone ship at sea and eventually on land. And in the end, the first one they landed successfully, they landed on land. Huh. And then later got to the barges. This was from June of last year, so it's almost a year old, this article. All right, go ahead. So let's talk about SpaceX's engine. This is an engine called Merlin. They're currently mm-hmm. at the 1D version. And I'll, I'll include a link to a test video, which I really recommend you take time to watch. In fact, okay. I'm going to ask you to watch it, buddy. Because it shows very clearly that we have a gas generator cycle engine where it's overboarding the turbo pump waste directly. I'm watching it now. Okay. I see explosions and yeah, extreme violence. And, and then you're going to see a shot of the side of the rocket with the flame shooting up below. And there's a black cloud streaming out beside it. Okay. I'm still, I'm 15, 16 seconds in. So I'm still seeing the, the white, uh, right at, you know, steam. Right at 10 seconds, even if you look. Oh, I see the black cloud now. Yeah. You see that black cloud streaming out of the pipe beside the main motor? So yeah. that's the gas generator doing its thing. And you notice it's just straight up overboarding that fuel. Yeah. For better or worse. This is more or less the same way the F1 worked. A lot of engines work this way. Even with that, at sea level, this engine, putting out about 150,000 pounds of thrust, has an ISP of 282. So more efficient than the F1, not quite as efficient as a bunch of other engines, you know, it, but it is one of the most efficient gas generator cycle engines ever made. Hmm. And because they use this same engine design all the way into orbit, it's vacuum performance matters. So mm-hmm. where at sea level, it gets about 150,000 pounds of thrust in orbit or above the atmosphere, 160,000 pounds of thrust. And the ISP goes up to 311, which is pretty high. Wow. Pretty cool. It's simple, but it is working very well. 
And again, you know, they're working with RP1 because it's easy to work with. They've got a reliable engine here that they use over and over again. But what's the downside to kerosene? Well, the downside to kerosene is it is a fuel you have to mine out of the ground, right? It comes from oil. Okay. So not easy to reproduce elsewhere. Right. And because it's a hydrocarbon, it does coke. You think about what happens to this motor when you shut it off and have to start it again. There are residues from yeah. the kerosene that will stick to the motor. And if there's too many residues, you could actually have the motor overheat because that carbon is actually a good insulator and could allow the engine to get too hot and melt. So is SpaceX looking for a fuel that, A, can be mined on other planets or manufactured from more abundant elements, perhaps, and that cl burns cleaner? Why? What a great question. Yes. <laughs> yes, they are. You didn't even pad me with that question. No, I didn't even meatball it to you. You figured it out. That's an engineer's brain right there, man. There you go. The, the new <laughs> fuel is methane or methane, depending on where you're from. Sure. So why? Yeah. Why not hydrogen? Yeah, hydrogen is abundant, but it's hard to, to get. It's hard to handle. You could crack it from water, yeah. but you need a lot of it, and the tankage is a bear, and compressing yeah. it into liquid is even worse. Yeah. Now, I, here's something I, I got to ask. What's the difference between methane and methanol? So, methane is actually a gas, and it's CH4, so a carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms, and that's it. Okay. M methanol is a particular alcohol derivative, which is normally a liquid and is a much more complicated hydrocarbon. Okay. So, again, it's hard to make. You you get it from organic sources as opposed to CH4, which you can make with the Sabater process. What's that? The Sabater process is a standard chemical process for combining carbon and hydrogen together to make methane. And it can be done with just like solar energy, solar electricity? No, it takes more electricity than that. You need hundreds of kilowatts to actually produce it efficiently. Okay. But not gigawatts. All right. And and it's a totally usable fuel. And you can compress it and put it in a tank and uh, use it for rocket fuel. Well, and that's what liquid natural gas basically is. Hmm. Right? So the stuff we already get. Yeah, sure. And and yeah. by the way, is cheaper than RP1 by about a threefold, although the cost of fuel is not that big a deal. I, I don't want to go down and make this the fuel show, but what about propane? I know propane burns a little bit hotter than liquid natural gas and is a little bit more dense, but... Propane sounds like it's something that has to be mined and can't be really created. You're absolutely correct, sir. It is, a, again, it is a hydrocarbon. It's a byproduct of oil production. It's mm -hmm. still a relatively simple compound. It's C3H8. Okay. But it's more difficult to make than methane is. Okay. So you could use it. You could manufacture it. You know, it can be made because it's still a relatively simple compound. It's just a bit more work for not a whole lot of benefit. You know, you could just take some cows up there in space and just, you know, put some masks on them and, you know, collect their burps. And now you got methane. That's a right? lot of cows, man. <laughs> a lot of cows. Cows in space. <laughs> <laughs> now, so let's talk about what's good about methane. All right. It's a cleaner burning fuel. So your coking issues with RP1, not right. there. It's naturally gaseous, which means there's a couple of benefits there. All gaseous fuels like liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen and so forth. One of the things you can also use them for is as pressurization for your tank. With RP1, as you're draining the tank, you have to replace that space so it doesn't create a vacuum inside your tank. So they actually mm. have to pump helium or nitrogen into that tank to keep it going. Yeah. 
with your liquid oxygen tanks, your liquid hydrogen tanks, not a big deal. And you can do the same thing with methane. You can just keep pumping excess gas back into the tank. Yeah. It burns hotter than RP1. Oh, interesting. Is that posing a problem, though? Because don't you want to get the most propulsion with less heat? Well, generally, the heat helps with propulsion efficiency. So you actually get a higher ISP out of it. But it means you have to make a heavier engine with better cooling in it. So it makes your motor more expensive. Or materials that can handle being that hot. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. It is not as dense as RP1, but it is about the same density as liquid oxygen. So the tanks would be about the same size. It is a cryogenic fuel. You can cool it into a liquid, but the cooling system would be pretty much the same as the liquid oxygen cooling. So you can handle liquid oxygen, you can handle methane. Okay. So when you add up all these things, what do you get? You get a higher efficiency fuel with a reasonable side tank that uses the same cryo systems you've already got. It turns out to be more efficient and easily manufactured off planet, but it makes a more expensive engine, which answers the question, why haven't we done this before? Why are we using methane engines all the time? Why, Richard? Why? Because as long as you're only using an engine once, there's no reason to bother. RP1 is fine. It gives you okay. most of the benefits. You get a less expensive motor of nearly comparable performance as long as you throw away the motor at the end. Right. And since we don't want to throw away the motor at the end anymore, this makes sense. If we want to make routinely reusable engines, methane makes more sense as a fuel. Okay. So NASA has experimented with a methane engine. Really? There is a project called Morpheus, which was actually a small lunar lander they did on a shoestring budget as an experiment and a 5,000-pound thrust methane engine. Now, that's not a lot of thrust, and the videos are kind of cool. The project's already over, but it sort of speaks to the fact that this is a totally serviceable fuel. We just have to spend the time to develop the motors and and get it where we need to. And in fact, two companies are working on major methane motors. Any guesses which two companies I'm talking about? I kind of think SpaceX is in there. Yep. SpaceX is one of them with their Raptor engine. And I would say maybe it's like a Boeing or a McDonnell Douglas or or one of those big industrial. Actually, it's Jeff Bezos' company, Blue Origin. No way. So Blue Origin is Jeff's sort of private spaceflight technology development. He's got a rocket now called New Shepard, which he's actually flown the same rocket up to the Kármán liner, just into space and back again, four times. Wow. Now, that particular motor is the BE-3, which is a liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen motor. But he is working on an engine called the BE-4, which is going to be a methane motor. And it's going to be in the 500,000-pound thrust class. Wow. He's actually offering it as an alternative to the RD-180. So remember I mentioned earlier, there's this Russian rotor that the Atlas V rocket's flying. And so they've said, hey, we'll size this engine running on methane to replace with the Osh have to run two of them to replace the RD-180. Huh. They, there's one other competitor. And it's remember Rocketdyne, the guys who build the F-1? Oh, yeah. Company's still around. It's called Aerojet Rocketdyne now, and they're talking about a motor called the AR-1, which would be an RP-1 motor, the same kind of thrust class. So there's mm-hmm. a competition going on between Blue Origin and Aerojet to replace the RD-180. I hope the methane engine wins just because it's so cool. Uh, and they're fairly, fairly far down the line. It's going to be the next few years we'll see that motor actually flying. That is awesome. Well, it's good that there's at least three. That means that there's going to be some quick competition that 
will help improve the speed of these things coming to market. Absolutely. And it is, you know, going back to the comment at the beginning, the fact that we're now iterating on these things faster, you know, the slowness of the evolution of space technology, why we're still flying so many 1960s and, and 70s engines and things, really comes from the fact that this has all been military industrial complex technology that is not incentive to innovate quickly. But yeah. these tech billionaires have come along and have really pressed on it to the point where, you know, SpaceX is a real competitor now. In fact, they've now declared one of the very first Falcon heavy payloads will be a national reconnaissance office payload. It'll be in March of 2017. That's a big wow. deal. That That is a big deal. SpaceX is going to fly something that would have normally flown on a Delta IV rocket by Boeing. It's now going to be flown for half the price, if not less. Wow. So it's a huge deal. Jumping back to the Falcon 9 and their whole reusability, like actually talking about how they get that first stage back down. We've seen it happen now. You've watched the videos a few times, and it's kind of astonishing what it does. But folks are trying to understand, you know, why hasn't it been done before? What's hard? What's easy? You know, how does this possibly work? There's only been two types of first stage returned, right? Okay. And and they're generally on the model they now call the full thrust model. Mm Mm-hmm. So the original Falcon 9 back from 2010 and it flew till about 2013 was the V1. Yeah. And then in 2013, they unveiled the V1.1, which was a bit bigger and the new design, what they called the OctoWeb. So the engines were used more efficiently and they actually overlapped that with one called the Full Thrust Edition. So the last V1 at 1.1 flew after the first Full Thrust had flown. Full Thrust is the current model of the Falcon 9. And the basic specs are $62 million for a rocket will lift 22 metric tons to low Earth orbit, 8 metric tons to a geotransfer orbit, and they believe 4 metric tons to Mars itself. Wow. However, if you want the first stage back, right, if you actually want to reuse that first stage, it costs you in performance. They have to fly at a lower fuel level. They have to reserve fuel. So you go from being able to lift 8 metric tons to geotransfer orbit down to 3.5 metric tons to geotransfer orbit. Wow. Less than half the lift if you want that first stage back. Wow. So that's getting down to the real math of the issues around all of this. Now, why is that? Well, you have to retain a certain amount of fuel, and you have to be able to get it to land. So if you're flying a Falcon 9 to the space station, at the point at which the first stage releases, it's moving at about a kilometer per second, hmm. or 2,200 miles per hour, roughly Mach 4. Otherwise known as really, really fast. But remember, in order to get into orbit, you're going to be going more like 25,000 miles per hour. So you're not going that fast yet. That's really, 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 really fast. <laughs> And the mock numbers are kind of unfair because yeah. at that point you're high enough in the atmosphere that you don't actually have enough atmosphere to talk about the speed of sound anymore. Mm-hmm. But you're going to come back down in a hurry, right? Yeah. Yeah. So after the separation happens, and you've seen video of this, cold gas thrusters flip the stage around, basically engine first for reentry. Now you are moving at a kilometer a second as you come back into the heavier atmosphere. So there's going to be heating. And if you ever see pictures of the rocket, you'll notice other than where the legs were, the entire rocket is blackened from that heating. Now, almost right away, once they're oriented correctly, they do a boost back burn. So they fire three engines up, only three, Mm. not all nine, to actually decelerate the first stage. And that's just so they don't have to send the barge too far out. 
It's the initial okay. burn that sort of slows the rocket down and gets it aligned for reentry. And then okay. these things called grid fins pop out of the top of the rocket. Of the top? Yes, because they're going to be coming in at Mach 4, and these little grid fins are enough to help them maneuver the rocket while it's in its entry burn to get it lined up with the barge. That makes sense because it's coming in, you know, bottom first, right? Right. And so you typically have fins on the back end right. of something that's flying. Yes. So the, yeah. the fins are in the right place. Yeah. Now, think about this. They use a pyrophoric engine lighting system. You're moving at Mach 4 through the atmosphere, coming down, and you're slowing down. The You know, the reason there's friction and you're actually heating up the rocket is you're decelerating from that. There are probably supersonic shock cones going into each of those motors, and you need to fire one of them to actually help maneuver it to land. Wow. And you've got to be able to fire your TEA and TEB into that engine with liquid hydrogen with that kind of air pressure blowing back into it. So it's kind of amazing that the relighting system works. Hmm. Yeah. But you'll notice that even in all the failed cases, the reason we saw the failed case is because the rocket made it all the way back to the barge. It just didn't finish the landing itself. And there's a bunch of reasons why that happened. At one point, they ran out of hydraulic fluid that was actually maneuvering the rocket so they couldn't maneuver properly. They've run out of fuel. It looks like that last landing that failed, the most recent one, they ran out of liquid oxygen. Mm -hmm. So there's a very tough budget in fuel in this because even though they're only going to fire one engine for landing, the minimum reliable thrust level of a Merlin 1D engine is too high to actually allow the rocket to hover. If you fire that engine, it will actually make the rocket go back up. So how do they land? I, it's an amazing question. I really want to know the answer. It's called a suicide burn. Okay. So you basically have to time where the barge is, where the rocket is, so that firing at your lowest thrust level, you will decelerate to zero just as you touch the barge. Wow. Because if you fire it too soon, you'll get to a point where you'll go back up before you've actually landed on the barge. And if you fire it too late, well, you're going to wear the barge. Wow. You will have what is called a RUD or a rapid unplanned disassembly. <laughs> In other words, kaboom. Kaboom. <laughs> now, why are we making such a big deal of ISS resupply versus a geotransfer launch? ISS resupply being supplying something to the... The space station. International Space Station. Right. So the space station is in low Earth orbit at a 45-degree inclination. It's a very particular flight profile. And so when the first stage has done its job, it's moving a kilometer a second and it can fly back. Yeah. When you're doing a geotransfer orbit, you're now pushing a satellite all the way to 22,300 miles into space. Now, it's a transfer orbit, so it's not completely round. It's an, it's an asymmetrical orbit. But it means that the first stage has to push a lot harder. And so instead of moving at one kilometer a second when it separates, it's moving at two kilometers a second. Mm. Now, if you're going to be at two kilometers a second, that's not just double the heat. It's eight times the heat. It's four times the energy that needs to be dissipated. You are going to hit the atmosphere closer to Mach 8 than Mach 4. Yeah. Which is why it's astonishing that they've gotten two of those rockets back. And it actually speaks to SpaceX knows more about supersonic engine reentry than just about anybody else, including NASA. And so one of the things that they're talking heavily about right now is if you want to land big things on Mars, you know, things that can support humans, mm -hmm. you can't use parachutes. 
and you can't use inflatables. The sky hook won't work. It's not big enough. Right. You're going to have to be able to use rocket motors at hypersonic speeds as you're coming into the atmosphere of Mars. And so one of the projects currently on Elon Musk's plan right now is a thing called Red Mars, where he's actually mm-hmm. going to land a Dragon capsule soft on Mars using supersonic retrograde propulsion. Wow. It's amazing. Wow, indeed. So one more rocket to talk about in terms of reusability, and that is Falcon Heavy. And we're all excited about Falcon Heavy. Okay. Because Falcon Heavy is basically three Falcon 9 strapped side by side, two outers and an inner. All right. And the numbers talk like this, about 95 million per flight should be able to lift 54 metric tons to low Earth orbit. That puts it as second to only the Saturn V in terms of low Earth orbit lift. 22 metric tons to geotransfer orbit, 13 metric tons to Mars. Wow. But that's presuming you don't try and reuse any of the rockets. So if you ever watch a video, and I'll include the link to it, of the Falcon Heavy demonstration, what what it would look like, they haven't flown one yet, but it's coming, the outer two rockets are released first, right? So they burn all their fuel, and then they separate, turn around, and fly back. Mm. The inner rocket continues on. And initially, it was proposed that they would do something called asparagus staging. Oh, no. What the heck's asparagus staging? Well, I'm thinking of an asparagus plant in the way it looks. It must have something to do with the head of the asparagus, which has that sort of layering. You're right. The idea was the outer two tanks would fuel the center line motors as well. Oh, so that once those two outer tanks are empty and they separate off, all 21 engines have been running at the same time, right? Nine times three. So they've had all that thrust to get up as high as they can go. Then the two outer tanks peel off and return yeah. and the inner one's still fully fueled. But think about what you got to do to make that work. Somehow you've got to divert the right mixture of propellant and liquid oxygen through a line to the other engines. Hmm. Ooh. That's tricky nobody's ever done it before and in fact at this particular point they're saying for the falcon heavy that they're going to be testing this year and next they won't be doing it so they've postponed that but they're also starting to do the math on what happens if you again save enough fuel to be able to return engines so if you just want to return the two outers you go from 22 metric tons to gto down to 14 metric tons to gto so you lose Mm. a third if you also want to get the center line back it's down to seven metric tons to gto which is actually, okay. you know, less mass lifted to GTO than a full bore, full thrust Falcon 9 with no returnables. So hmm. unless these things return and can reduce the price dramatically, unless we start being able to reuse these stages and really get a full benefit from it, there's a big question here now of is reusability worth it? You're losing an awful lot of performance. Depending on the question is, can you really cut the price enough? to justify the loss of performance. If you're going to have a reusable rocket, doesn't it make sense to use materials that might be more expensive because they would last longer, like carbon fiber or something? I'm with you. And it's one of the questions I've ever had a chance to ask Elon directly, I would say. What would you do different on the rocket knowing you're going to be able to use it 25 times? Right. One of the things obviously will be a methane engine. Methane mm. engines are more expensive, but they're more efficient. Mm. Uh it makes sense to use that engine on a reusable rocket. And they'll probably be in better shape than these RP-1 engines are going to be. Now, we don't actually know how well off the Merlin Ds that have been used are at this point. They haven't flown them yet. 
And they haven't yeah. really explained it yet. So maybe in some ways I've done this show too early that we're about to find out how reusable those engines actually are. But I'm sure the methane engines would be more reusable. You think about it, everything we've done here, coming to the end of the show, I've only talked about a first stage so far. What about the second stage? Yeah, what about the second stage? Well, what about that second stage? Because if you look that? at the early videos of SpaceX, they talked about the second stage being reusable too. Hmm. Now, the second stage is moving much, much faster. Right. It basically goes into orbit. In fact, today, in order to decrease space junk, after a second stage has boosted its satellite into orbit, it actually saves enough fuel to deorbit itself to burn up in the atmosphere. And it just burns up. And it does burn up and is dumped in the ocean. You generally, some parts of it, typically the toughest parts like the propellant chamber and some of the high-pressure tanks and so forth, survive to hit the ocean. So you have to actually make sure you hit the ocean with it. Yeah. All of the Falcon 9s to date, second stages, have been dumped in the Indian Ocean. That's where they've ended up. And is that because it's just more cost-effective to dump it and build it again than it is to try to retrieve it? And not just cost-effective, but the amount of energy you would have to save, right? The, yeah. You'd have to put a heat shield on the second stage. Yeah, That's heavy. Right. You'd have to save enough fuel for the maneuvering. It would basically have to go around the planet and land. Hmm. You may not have enough energy left over to actually lift anything to orbit. Yeah. So are they actually thinking of reusable second stages? They wanted to, but at this particular point, they can't make it make sense. Yeah. It's cheaper to just build another one. Yep. And that's sort of where we are, you know? Okay. That is the limit of reusability at this particular point. So we're going to be watching SpaceX carefully, and they've successfully retrieved their rockets, but and, and just summarizing here, but yep. they haven't reused them. They've yep. retrieved them, but haven't reused them. So now Absolutely they're working on that. Now, the... Ariane Space Folks, Airbus, has talked about a concept called Adeline, and I'll include a link to this in the show notes. It's a video. Just a proposal. Nobody's built anything. There's no budget for this yet. Or okay. what if the rocket engines at the back of the rocket, not the tank, but just the engines, separated off and flew home? Hmm. A little easier to handle because you don't have that big, long tank to save, which may yeah. or may not be valuable anyway. Yeah. Uh, you're saving the most expensive part, just the motors. Yeah. There's just no funding for it at this point. Okay. If nothing else, SpaceX is making everybody think about what does reusability look like. Right. Yeah. And s somebody asked me when I was talking about recording the show, if you had a chance to build a space shuttle again, how would you make it different? If we wanted to make a truly reusable space shuttle, 100% reusable. With the same cargo space and the whole same purpose and all of that? Yeah. Well, there's an interesting question there. You talk about things that were wrong with the space shuttle. One would argue putting the RS-25 motors on the space shuttle was a problem. They weren't needed for the shuttle. They were only needed to launch. Return them a different way, and you get rid of about half the weight of the space shuttle. space shuttle was 100 tons. If you could take off that whole back end, you'd be better off. But I also think we've come to the conclusion that combining heavy cargoes that could carry 50 metric tons of, of cargo and humans is just a bad idea. Yeah. And generally speaking, strapping delicate orbiters to the side of rockets is also a bad idea. Yeah. If Challenger hadn't been down there where the solar rocket motor was burning, it wouldn't have had the burn through. If Columbia hadn't been down there where the ice could fall on it, it wouldn't have had the damaged wing. It makes more sense to put human-rated stuff at the top of the rocket. And it's cheaper right. if you have reusable rockets. As soon as we have reusable rockets, lift the cargo separately and fly the people right. separately. Right. And so, and admittedly, the heat protection system developed for the space shuttle is now 40 years old. There are new heat protection solutions that they're looking at for modern airliners and things that would work way better. 
And so when yeah. you take away the cargo and you take away the motors and it's just an orbiter that can re-enter and land, it looks a lot like vehicles we're actually experimenting with right now. Take a look at the X-37 and the X-38. Yeah. The 37 is a U.S. Air Force reusable vehicle. It's incredibly top secret, but there's a bunch of pictures around on it. Looks like a mini space shuttle. Yep. The X-38 was actually a vehicle for staying up at the space station to evacuate the astronauts. And it would hold seven people and could re-enter and return. An updated version of that could easily be a modern shuttle in a lot of respects. Wow. Wow. And the bigger thing here is in the, the X-38, they actually built a test flight article. And with orbital maneuvering equipment, it would have been 14 metric tons versus 100 metric tons, which means Falcon 9 could lift a modernized X-38 into orbit. Hmm. But instead, they're building the manned dragon capsule, which in theory is reusable as well. It's just a capsule. Just a question of whether they'll actually reuse them. But I guess we'll see, because that's the next piece of reusability. But I got to leave it with the sort of reality that SpaceX has not solved the reusability problem. Yeah. Possibly first stages are going to work, because they're testing that. Second stages are out. And uh, the capsules, well, we'll see. We'll see. And I'm sure we'll talk about it again on another Geek Out show. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 